So let's move into it. This is Mark Griffin, uh, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. And here we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. Every episode, we talk with one of our consultants exploring a recent engagement, and we describe the issues we were faced with and how we solved them. And we have a little fun along the way. So let's get to it. In the studio today is Earl Beattie, a senior fellow here at Construct Software. He has designed and implemented improved software practices for companies and industries, including telecom, computer hardware, software, uh, pharma, medical devices, oil and gas, retail, many others. Uh, prior to Constructs, Earl had software positions at organizations including the Department of Defense, Boeing, and Verizon Wireless. At Constructs, Earl provides consulting services on agile methods, early project lifecycle practices, estimation requirements, QA, and software methodologies. His innovation initiative was the vision behind the Constructs on-demand e-learning content. So welcome, Earl. Oh, thanks, Mark. Does that capture you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it... it. I think it's going to have to be uh, carved in my headstone. I, think <laughs> I will put you in charge. I don't want to memorialize it that much. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's let's talk about a recent class you had. Um, one of the topics that we that we have we we hear about all the time from some of our clients has to do with um, people who are successful in doing Scrum in the project or in the small, and they move to a scaled approach, a larger approach, and run into some difficulties. And you had a recent class where you, you talked through some things to try and help the team in, in certain ways. And w one of the things that, that we had was we, we had thought about this idea of a decision model that you introduced and to help them kind of think about some of these issues. And so do you want to describe that decision model a little bit for me, just, just to kind of give everybody an appreciation for it? Sure, sure. The decision model is, is a simplified thing, as all models are. But it talks about there's different levels of decisions. And the levels of decisions have to do with the scope of the decision. There are decisions at a product level scope, a decision that affects the entire product. Its impact is over the entire product. Are we building it or not? What, who's it for as a product? There is release decisions. What are we going to do to move that product forward in a discrete period of time? Or you maybe think it's a project or a release or a milestone. Okay. But some period of time we're going to move that forward. Then there's feature level decisions that only affect the feature. So these different levels have different sort of scopes of impact. That would make some different levels of, of abstraction. And what we see is that, especially as we scale up, what starts happening is that people start arguing about the bigger decisions, right? Mm -hmm. The whole product level or release level or even in feature level because features are larger often at this point. And they forget that they can continue to break these down into smaller and smaller decisions that, in a sense, decrease the scope or the batch size of the decision. Okay. Um, and when they're up there at the larger feature level sort of batch size on this decision model, they're getting really wrapped around the axle. Like, how do we build this big thing in two weeks? It's like, well, you don't. You've got to work the batch size. So part of that process for batch sizing um, really talks about you know, in, in the team, in a small sense, you've got you've got things that are generally at a product um, backlog item level. So they're small, they're manageable, they're something the team can see, they understand. But when when there's like layers of snow in a big in a big project or a big program, there's lots of those PBIs. It could potentially in a in a large project could be thousands of them spread across teams. Uh, I mean, it should it, be. Does that does that belie the complexity 
that the team actually struggles with trying to figure out where all those things belong, or is it more in in the hierarchy they describe, but product release um, feature? No, what what I see here in this particular aspect of the scaling is that it's typically the product owners and any kind of technical architects are making very coarse, higher level decisions. Okay. Like the product should have this feature, and then they stop. Okay. And now it's going to take three teams to build this feature, but they're not helping everyone break this down into smaller units so that we can figure out how to allocate it among the teams. So each team is sort of given an entire feature, which the team itself can't do by itself. Okay. They now only have dependencies because they're trying to get resources from other teams. Say, okay. oh, I need you to build this piece, rather than saying, hey, we need to decompose this further, shrink the batch size, I guess, of the decisions. So saying, instead of build a feature, we're going to build this aspect of the feature. Okay. One of the things I, I really like to help people understand is that you often don't need an entire feature to deliver value, right? Because when people talk about features, they're, they're particularly talking about a capability of the tool. And usually when someone's using the tool, a consumer out there, mm-hmm. they only need a little bit of that capability to complete one thing that's valuable to them. And so the idea is to shrink the batch size to this value stream, or I like to call it value path, one pathway, one particular way to get a value that needs a little bit of this feature, a little bit of that feature, a little bit of that feature. So we shrink the batch size down to this value path kind of thing. Okay. Then we can start seeing how the teams all coordinate together to build their little parts of the feature to build the one stream that crosses multiple teams. So you talk about batch size. This batch size is a, is a phenomenon that would occur at each of those levels, I assume, right? You could play with the notion of batch size at a release level, right? And how much is carved into a release? What do you move between releases? Something like that? Yeah, I, I, you can. I think um, one of the... I'm glad this will be edited because they can take all the pauses out. One of the tricks that you're thinking about when you think batch size, especially like when you say the release level, is, is to be able to say, is this the right size decision that we're making for this particular thing? Is this the right amount of work for this period of time? Okay. Now, one of the tools that we're going to use often, and we're going to especially on scaling, it's a lot more powerful even, is the release burn down or something like that. So we get early warning whether our batch size decisions were correct matched. Yeah. Are we going to be able to meet that okay. or not? If we get that early warning decision, then we can make adjustments to it on work we haven't started yet. Because one of the things we're going to try to avoid, and particularly with batch size, is to avoid a lot of work in progress or work in process, depending which way you to like overload, to use the word. Right. Well, right. not just overload, but all these teams, especially scale, all starting work because they see this big batch that got, was given to them. They all start work on all of it. And halfway through, it becomes abundantly clear that uh, all of it can get done. So we have to stop some teams working on some things, switch some people around. Well, all that work that they've done now is waste. We could have been all working on something delivering. So we're going to deliver less because we started with this big batch and didn't get it because early. Thrashing or because thrashing? Of- no, because we all said, oh, we're all starting work on all these feature comp- parts because mm-hmm. I got one feature, you've got another feature, team three got another feature. Right. We're working on all the feature. And we're halfway through and we realize we can't finish our own features, let alone get anything working that we can deliver to a customer. So because hopefully someone comes along okay. yeah. and says, stop, work on just this one thing. Well, all this other stuff we worked on now gets sits there. And the problem is if it sits there, within a month or so, the assumptions that you had building that, the reality was around, have all shit enough that when you go back to going, I don't really trust that, I'm going to have to rebuild it from scratch. Which means you threw it away, 
Right. You start with, that's the waste. So you've lost, you've actually lost it. And we talked about that in the prior podcast. And when, I, when we had Melvin Perez on here, we talked a little bit about work and process issues. And one of the things about wait states was just that you started something, put it aside, and it takes you that much more effort to get back into the If you can even flow. use it. If you can even use it again. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Exactly. Interesting. So you, you also mentioned the, this idea of, of you know some of these classical def- definitions of discovery phase, invention phase, implementation phase, um, those sorts of things. Uh, how does that correlate to, into this model? You know, when you talk about as you look at batch right. size, do you, you do you do something with that? Right. So I, I talked about earlier the levels: the product, the release, the feature, maybe the work item level. Right. And then I had in my model columns, and they were discovery, invention, and implementation. Okay. Uh, discovery, invention, implementation are the three phases, and Melvin hates me using that word phase because one thinks you're waterfall then. The, the, embrace the end. You embrace the end. Yes. But there really are, because your brain has to do this. And I love describing uh, someone who wants to go and make something in the kitchen. Right? You walk in the kitchen, and you don't, your hands just don't prepare. You start making food and going, I have no idea why my hands are making this food. They're just <laughs> preparing food for some reason. Right, the moment you walk in, you're thinking, "I'm hungry. I want a snack, or I need to fix breakfast for my family, or I need to make lunch for a larger group." There's some reason you're walking. That's discovery. You, the understanding of why this is going on in the first place, and then you come up and say, "Oh, to solve this breakfast for my family thing, I'm going to do eggs and bacon." Right. Right. You you come up with a plan. You organize yourself. You come up with a strategy to solve that particular. That's the invention. So you got discovery. What is the problem? Invention. How I'm going to solve it. And then you have to have the skills and ability to actually organize yourself, order things right, make sure it all works out so it all comes out at the same time and it's edible. Right? Well, unfortunately, with my cooking, the first two might work fine, but the third part, you don't get anything edible. Usually I'm stopping and putting Band-Aids on. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's part of your implementation. So that's the implementation. Yeah. So I've, there's decisions in each one of those, right? There's decisions about which problems are really worth solving. And this is where the, one of the things that organizations fall down all the time because they think every problem is worth solving. As opposed to saying, yeah, these are all great problems, but here's the ones we're going to focus on initially because they have the best possible ROI, and then proceeding to the next stage. Invention, where we all love to live because this is the fun place where we can dream up solutions for things and not actually have to do them yet. Right? We all have these big pie-in-the-sky architectures and designs, and whoo, you look great. Right. And then there's the things that the teams primarily do, but... As there's levels on all of them, which is the implementation, actually embodying that in a physical work that is captured, then and then you hand it off to somebody else. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Does, does Safe really has it have any thoughts about about this, as, or Safe is more or stays away from some of these issues? So, <laughs> I'm baiting you. You know that. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> Safe, Safe is founded by Dean Leffingwell, and Dean Leffingwell made his initial. Uh, a foray into requirements and project management, program management. That was his background and expertise before seeing this niche that was needed in scaled agile framework. Um, and he, he doesn't distinguish very clearly between discovery and invention and invention and invitation. That's, that's, I don't think he really does a lot of work with that. Okay. And in fact, SAFE has this really weird progression of epic feature story task as if they're a decomposition from each other. And really, if you, I think if you look at requirements slightly differently than that does, it's that epic and feature are, are two different columns. They're the discovery column and the invention column. They're not decompositions from different levels in the same column. They're different columns altogether. And so everyone's getting screwed up on this. 
everyone's having a lot of problems going, right. how do you write a feature? And how does that turn into a story? Because they're jumping from column to column in my model, and it doesn't translate well. And then task is down on the implementation column. Okay. So it's like, whatever. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's good. I think a lot of people have, you know, safe is certainly something that's very prolific out in, out in the world among big teams, and people are using them, using it effectively, but there are some caveats and some issues that you need to watch out for. I think you and I have a, another engagement we worked on recently that we're, we're providing some advice in that structure and that framework. Yeah. It's been very helpful. So. Yeah, we should do a podcast on that. Subject. That should be. That's a great idea. We can come back and do that. <laughs> so, so let's talk about another, another topic that came up in this class. And, and it, you know, when you start talking about some of these things of, of doing batch size decomposition and, and looking back through feature and looking back through release, you're... Um, in some respects, there's there's an illusion there that maybe things weren't completely um, decomposed properly as you went down through that process, and so you know you introduced this idea of backfilling um, as as an idea for folks to think about when they get into some problem areas, and that really is sort of recursing back up that decision tree to deal with bad inputs, right? Or, or, or less than really less is. than defined inputs. Well, well defined inputs. we've got two main issues that backfilling, and I'll, I'll talk about what that is more in just a second. But the two issues it's really trying to address. One is that it turns out that it, from my engagement now with twenty plus years here at Constructs and all my work before that, that human beings don't like to think about the discovery problems. They love to think about the invention problems. We live in design. We live it because design's physical. It's a reality we can right, touch, we can right. point, we can say that's a real thing, as opposed to talking about an esoteric problem or opportunity that I have. So one of the issues is that everyone's talking about invention and making decisions there, and no one's making decisions about what problems really we need to solve and what's a well-defined problem that's worth solving. So one of the places that we have to backfill is say, why are we doing this? Because the issue becomes, as we get down in the decision tree, because at the top of that decision tree, there's just a handful of decisions, a few, 7, 12, maybe 20. Mm -hmm. As you get down to the next level of decision-making, down to the release of that, now you've got a, a few dozen, 60, 90-ish. Down below that, a few hundred. But down below that, it comes into tens of thousands, the thousands of PBIs you were talking about earlier. Right. Well, if... I'm going to have to make decisions about all those little PBIs, those tens of thousands of PBIs. I have, I have to be, it's like my hands starting to make food again. I have to say, why am I doing this? If I don't have a clue why, I can't proceed, my hands will just stop. But I will say, oh, I think I'm trying to wrap a tortilla or I'm trying to scramble some eggs because mm -hmm. I want to feed hot eggs and bacon to my family. And, I, I, and if I don't hear what that problem is from the leadership, I'm gonna make it up myself. So it's gonna be about what problem I think is worth solving. And so I will make my little decisions about the eggs I'm working on. Meanwhile, my spouse will be thinking oatmeal, <laughs> because that's those problems that depending on the solution they come out. And they're gonna be, and also, how come we're not making the same food? It's like, oh, yeah. we didn't understand that. I was making lunch, I was preparing lunch for tomorrow. I thought, you're making breakfast now, you wanna do that now? So this is about stakeholder clarity in, in, in some of the decisions being passed down or, or lack of thereof? They're not, first of all, making decisions because no one trains on how to make decisions in the discovery space. It's not natural, so does it come natural? You need to be trained and right. practice that. And that's why good business analysts are, are worth their weight in gold. Um, 
then once once even if they're thinking about deciding it, how do you capture it in a way that you can share it easily with the people below? That you can create a framework. I hate that word. Um, you can create a <laughs> go with an encapsulation of enough decision that when people go, oh, I'm making my little decision at the lower level. I'm looking up there and say, does this fit? And I can say yes, it fits or not. And I can say, so this is a good decision or not, as opposed to going, I don't know what's up there. It might work. Well, so some of this some of this happens because the team maybe begins to react on something without proper guidance or without proper delineation of what they're thinking. And there's you get, even with multiple teams, it's exacerbated, I'm sure, in a large scaling, yeah. scaling environment, right? So you that clarity becomes that much more important to have right. at those levels. Right, so what backfilling is basically saying, it's saying we're a team or we're a set of teams, um, like if we're doing SAFE, we're at a PI program increment, we're going to do some big room planning. And we do not have clarity from the decisions above. We have a, we've, we've developed a checklist. We know exactly what we were looking for, and this is not it. They've said things like, we like something a little bit more intuitive, please. What the hell does intuitive mean? Right. Right? And so what we're going to do is that we're going to define what intuitive means in measurable, testable tests or units. And here's a great way to do the test first. We're going to write some tests that says when we pass these tests, it will be now therefore intuitive. And we're going to do that as a team. So at least as a team, we're not fighting each other. One's not making oatmeal while the other one's making eggs. Gotcha. Kind of thing. Okay. So we're all going to the same So we're going to, we're going to line and we're going to backfill, fill those decisions that should have been made. Now, what we're, we're going to do is we're going to share those decisions upstream um, because it turns out, I think, that human beings are much more willing to work with something than with nothing. One of the reasons, if you, if you accept my argument that they don't know how to do it, saying to them, please go do it, won't get you anything. Right. But right. if you've been trained to how to do it and you say, okay, is this correct? They're much easier to say, yeah, that's correct, or no, and I want to, and they'll start telling you how they want to tweak it because now they got something to work from. I'll know it when I see it, kind of idea, right? Yeah, I know when I see it, and when I when it's not quite right, I'll, I can actually now I have something to, to manipulate to be able to show you what I really need, and that's the real strength of backfilling. It, it it one keeps the team aligned, so at least they're as efficient as possible. May not be going the quite the right way, but at least they're all not going eight different ways. Right. And two, it gives the people who do not know how to make decisions something to grab onto to help make that decision to drive it forward. So, but there is, I mean, I'll, I'll devil's advocate here. There is the potential for a slight amount of anarchy here, isn't there? Isn't there? If, if someone at the feature level, maybe a, a, some stakeholders really felt like they gave enough direction and the team is bucking it or is deciding to kind of do something different because they they. Uh, maybe they interpret it differently, and they say, "Well, we're going to go this way." How do you control that notion of that? Is there a communication right. vehicle there to kind of to, yeah. to to come up with a handshake? Yeah, I used to joke when I was at Boeing. It was the first duty of every team to revise its charter. <laughs> right? You thought you wanted us to do this. You really don't yeah. want that. What you really want is um, because we're the ones that actually do the work, and we know what you really are trying to get, and that's not what you're trying to get. Right. Yeah, no, there has to be, and that's why I, the, the idea of backfill is that you have to take what you've done and then send it back Propagate. upstream so Propagate. they can say, here's what we think we're hearing, or here's where we think what we're interpreting this as, or we heard what you said, and that doesn't quite make sense, and here's the reason why. So this is what we think that's the best answer for what you're trying to achieve. Right? You've got to send that back upstream because one, one of Earl's roles of, of product development is that surprises are never good. 
<laughs> right? There's no, even if you think it's a great surprise, it's not a great surprise. There's no good surprises. There's only bad and awful. <laughs> um, and so if okay. you're surprising the leadership with something later on, it's like, that's not good. Right. Yeah. No one, they don't like it upstream like that. So, so realistically, you're, you know, you're at the feature and, and PBI level, you typically have maybe scrum team members who are doing some of this activity. I mean, yeah. as you rise in that model, um, is there a proxy that's having these conversations? Would that be a product owner who's going back saying the team has done a little work here and we're, there's some ambiguity with maybe some non-functional requirements that don't seem to make sense to them? Is that the person that brokers that, or is, or is, the, is there more people than that involved in the conversation? And this is where I have to give a lot of credit to SAFE and, and Dean Leffingwell is that out of all the agile methods that are out there, safe, Nexus, less, scaled agile. Dad. Dad. Well, dad, dad died a while back. That's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the ones that still have any kind of traction, the, the Spotify model, only, only safe really says, oh, you know what? Let's address something above the feature level. Everything else where it says features come into existence somehow. How they come magically. into being is somehow right. magically and an emotional little fairy dust. And safely says, you know what? We have to have this business discussion to create these agile value streams. And these value streams could then transmute into uh, agile release trains and all these other things. And and he signs roles. And what it is is that at the lower levels, the product going, but then he has product management, okay. which, frankly, product the product owner is a proxy and is product manager is the primary stakeholder. Right. Right. And now about product management, they have visual VP something. Or release, that, release manager somewhere in there. Well, release manager um, and agile training manager are actually the scrum manager hierarchy. Okay. Things. I got you. But it's PO, PM, executive, business owner, or something like that, or business owner or something like that. Right, right. Up, okay. on, the, up on the decision side. So the, he, at least it does name someone responsible. In most of the implementations, it's going to be the product owner acting as a proxy joint to find out who the heck that is. On a scaled agile, then that's why you often want to have what's called a chief product owner, right? Where is that decision going to be made? Who is not necessarily going to make it themselves, but at least accountable and responsible for making that decision and, you know, employing whatever resources and aids they need to make that happen. So there should be somebody up there. And that's one of the things we do in when I take trying to get people to look at scaled agile. One of my major rules is let's identify the decision makers, right? Yeah. Because we have these decisions that need to be made. And if they're not going to make them, who are we going to backfill it to to say, here's what we're doing? We don't want any surprises. No, it's a great it's a great concept to push. So you know these things can certainly even snag a small team and, and and get a small team to be to have weight states and to be not necessarily understanding. But it's certainly in in at scale it gets way more important to have these delineations made, right? To have these people who are responsible and to just really to have the stakeholders and and the people who are doing uh, to learn and adapt and. And, and come up with something that they converge on, right? Right, I mean, right. I mean, that's kind of, that leads me, I'm, I'm playing my own straight man here. Right, right. But I was, I just, I just had to say, I was looking at the paper today and there was a sewage leak in Tacoma and I would say, it's, you're just like a sewage leak. You know, a little is bad, a lot more just makes a lot worse. Oh, you know, that's, that's all we're talking about. Here. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. a little is bad, a lot more just makes it like more stinky and more messy. That's about all we're getting here. <laughs> 
Well, so so my 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 lead into this to the last subject we're going to talk about was really this this, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit in this conversation is that you're talking about collaboration that 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 I think in some respects agile practices kind of at at the core talk about this notion of this elegant collaboration that happens between stakeholders and and doers and things like that and it's not always elegant and it's not always done i mean you have you have on the on the myers briggs scale a bunch of engineers who would prefer to be left in the corner and not be talked to by humans send me an email send me you know slide something under the door and and tell me when lunch is right so right. not that i you know bad mouth engineers because i are one but <laughs> but i think the idea here is that people are told to do um collaborate in scrum but but what really happens at scale with this collaboration? Well, it, it, even even at the small, you know, and it's actually when you think about it, it's what I get people to see is that Scrum is actually the first level of scaling, right? Because what we have is in history of software development is a bunch of individual engineers who are given some work to do. They go off and do their work and they report it and hopefully they maybe integrate with someone else. Maybe they talk to someone else, but basically they work by themselves. Right. Scrum is the first level scaling. It says, how do we stop from working individually to working as a collaborative team? All the Scrum stuff is really about how do we act as a team rather than acting as individuals who happen to report to the same manager. Right. Um, and so we're, we see it there. And if you start looking at that Scrum and it's small, what you see is that almost all the ceremonies, the events of Scrum, the daily stand-up, the sprint planning, the retrospective, the review, they're forcing people together to do some work. Right. Right. And that's the trick to really collaborate. Because if you say to them, you know what, we're going to be scrum. You guys collaborate. <laughs> what ends up happening, and we see this in shop after shop, is say, we're going to go collaborate. And so what happens? Well, they go to sprint planning, and the lead hands out stories to each of the developers. Here's your story. Here's your story. Here's your story. You got two weeks. Go. Right. And, and they're all happy. Yeah, and they're all happy. Go, yeah, I got my work, and here's my six stories I have to work on during the sprint. Here's my, my, my work. They're not really talking maybe a little bit, but they get together once a day, and they all report status, which means that one person's talking, and the other four are all on their laptops checking their emails, maybe doing some programming, because they don't really care. They're right. just taking it. Right. And they say, well, is, but, but Agile, Scrum is going to say, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's take one story and see how we can figure out how the entire team can work on it. And that's what's supposed to happen in sprint planning. And in sprint planning, they're not just having communication, here's your work, but they're saying, how do we as a team build a plan to, as a team, solve that story? Which means I'll take this little pit and you take that little pit, and each day in the daily stand-up, what we're doing is like checking the plan. So what Cisco did the study way back in 2009 and they really found clearly, because they looked over their 10,000-odd developers, whatever they are, and said, wow, how do we get them to actually collaborate? Because we tell them to collaborate, and they're not collaborating. And what they found is that you have to create things to cause them to collaborate. And so my, my, my spin on that is have people collaborate about doing work together, not sharing information. Sharing information, collaborations, it sounds good. People say it's important, and then work happens, and they stop because work is important. Well, that's the idea, like, things that are used to try and foster that are things like these guilds and communities of interest and communities of practice and things like they that. They're all die. good, but they always, yeah, they, they always, always sort of, die. They don't have, they don't have staying power. I mean, power. If, there's, if, if you've got one person who's really dedicated who's putting on a brown bag every month for the team and is coming up with content for them, you know, people will show up and go, yeah, it's nice to like it. But they're really not getting a lot from it. But if you get people and you say, you know what? You have to produce this deliverable together. 
Okay. All of a sudden it's like, holy crap, we're now, now it's now accountable. My job compensation is based upon actually delivering this kind of stuff rather than just tending this and learning something, right? And, and they start to have to work together because that's what we have to do to get the job done. And so what kind of things can you create where people have to work together to get something done? And right. that's that's how I talk about forcing collaboration as opposed to just so requesting do, collaboration, the work encouraging the, collaboration. Right, doing the work is essential, and and so even you know these essential conversations are always important in in just basic small in this scrum in the small. But when you get to the scale level, these having these collaborations and getting people to kind of do things in that sense to move things forward. It, it, it potentially staves off wait states because you've kind of forced that issue of an engineer who has nothing to do or is looking for things to do and needs more more things to happen. So that, that essential conversation needs to occur, right? Right. It's this conversation to occur. And also we have to be very careful about learning of a scopes of authority or boundaries. Okay. Right. So one of the <laughs> One of the crazy things that you can do is sometimes say, well, we've got 50 developers. We need to collaborate, so let's get 50 people working on the same thing. Exact same thing, right? Turns out that's just a little bit too much, right? The 7 plus or minus 2 rule starts to get very violated at 50. Yeah, at 50, yeah, for sure. Right? A lot more pizza. And so, yeah, too many pizzas. Um, and so one of the things is like saying, okay, how do we take and create some maybe 10 teams of 5 or 7 teams of 8 or 9? Right. How do we create some something and then take representative from those teams to form a team that has to work on something together? So this is what Nexus, I think, does so brilliantly with their scaling solution that you don't see in like safe. Nexus says, we're going to take a technical person from each of the team. And they're going to form what's called the Nexus integration team. Okay. And their job is to keep an integrated, workable product increment at all times. So as each of the individual teams are doing their bits, their job is to come together at least once a day and say, is this all working together? And how do we need to adjust ourselves to make sure that each day is working together? And if it isn't working, that work, integration work, making sure the thing where it takes precedent over the team's work. So some level of, of discovery happens that, that someone in that dialogue says, you know, I was assuming this, you were assuming that, we need to work this out. And we got to fix it. We right. have to make have it work. We have to make it work. Forcing the conversations, those essential conversations you're talking about, they have to happen because now we're on the hook for actually maintaining this deliverable as totally. opposed to, I just had to meet with you and share some information. Totally. You're screwed. Good luck. <laughs> Never happens. Never, <laughs> Never happens. happens. Never happens. Right, because I got this list of priorities over here from my other product owner that's just, I can't have time for you, right? So it's just really figuring out that scope and forcing them to have this responsibility as opposed to just... Yeah, that makes total sense. So in this class, we, you know, you raise these issues, these topics, you have batch size and the backfilling concept and this notion of forcing collaboration. Uh, what was the response? What, did, what do, do folks think about that? How do, they, how do they respond to you in terms of, um, you know, these concepts? Did they, did, were there was a lot of interest in, in trying these things? Was that kind of a, a real solid feedback? Yeah, that they, that yeah. yeah. I, it, one of those, it's, it's always a great time to teach this and have them look at this because this is usually the first time they thought of it from this angle. Um, a lot of other instructors or other courses are very good at describing the activities you need to do. Mm -hmm. Right? Here's, here's the activities that need to happen. Uh, and you have to, like, let's say things like, you have to have transparency. And this is, this is, this is the steps of having transparency. I'm a little different. Um, I like to explain. Don't we know? Why? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what, 
I like to explain why are we bothering with transparency? Well, how is that going to help us? I like to do the discovery piece. That's where, where my skills particularly lie. And, I, and then this idea of understanding, like, working together, forcing collaboration, like, oh, now they start to spin off saying, how can I actually do that in my organization? You see a wheel spring, how they're kind of thinking about how they could do this and how they could do that. Because they understand the why now. It allows them to come up with their own innovative solutions for their own organizations that make sense in their culture and their time. Right? Whereas if I just get in the activity, they go, oh, that doesn't work at our shop. Right. We tried it once. Right. Well, here's what it's trying to achieve. Oh, if that's what it's trying to achieve, we could actually do this and get that achievement. Well, that's much better. Yeah. Well, that sounds like right. they, they really embrace that. It's, a, right. it's actually really good to right. hear. Right, because it allows them to own it. Yeah. And this is, this is how agile at its best, and even development at its best, should work. I create the why clearly enough that you can figure out the how, how you're going to meet that. The how. That makes sense with your skills and abilities and your culture. And you can execute on it. And that's what Agile is trying to say when we have this idea of inspect and adapt, the name of the podcast. Right, right exactly. Right? It's to say, oh, we understand why. Here's what we're trying to do to get there. It's not quite doing well. We'll make an adjustment and go forward. And try it from there. Yeah. That's perfect. That's a great segue. I mean, you spent your career, I think, a lot of your career on the requirements practices, right? And and it's clear from your conversations today you like talking to people. You like talking to about these issues and getting people to think about these things at that level, the essential conversations at a requirements level. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I actually don't like it that much. I'm an introvert engineer who wants to go off and work by myself, could too. could never tell that. Yeah. <laughs> Shit Myers briefs so, you. So, so it always drains the heck out of me. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I do. That's if, if there's something that energizes me. It's, it's having those conversations about particularly requirements. Awesome. Um, I think requirements are are used that words used all the time, and and no one, three people mean the same thing by it. Exactly, and and I think we've we've learned as an industry for the last forty years or more that you still have the most defects in any project or, or originate from requirements, requirements yeah. like that. So, so I think we should we should kind of cap it at that. I think this has been a great conversation. We, you know, I think there's lots of ideas I have for future podcasts. Will you come back and join us? <laughs> yeah. I have to. I work here. Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> so is, that turn, is, that, is that part of collaboration we yeah, talk about? Like yeah. twist your arm Force them to work together. Force you. Just schedule right. it. You have to produce a deliverable God. the podcast, and then God. we'll collaborate. Good thing I don't work for you. Oh, I mean, thank you, Earl, for being here today. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all the time we have today. Be sure to tune in again for another edition of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin, your host. Cody Madison has been our sound engineer and Devin Musgrave, our producer. Have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you found us. If you have comments or would like to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you.